appreciate that very much. Praise the Lord. The Almighty. Amen. Romans chapter 3. If you grab your Bibles, join me there. If you need a Bible, that's there in front of you. And uh, we have some extra outlines. Brother Al will make his way down the front. If you don't have a prayer bulletin upon which the, the, the outline is on the back, I'd encourage you to get Brother Al's attention. He'll make his way down here. He'll head to the back. I have a confession to make. I'm getting old. You know what they say, right? When you get old, what's the first thing to go? Your mind, right? Okay. So here I am, and I've been announcing, I even told Rhonda today, the offering is for a few Bibles. We've got our few Bibles. It's hymn books. They're for hymn books. We haven't finished it. I'm sitting there after prayer. I'm like, wait a second. We have our Bibles. Why did I say that? So the mind's going. And uh, I just talked about working smarter, Brother Marvin, and uh, that's not uh, what happened there. <laughs> and uh, when we get older, you have to work smarter, not harder. Well, apparently, I can't do that either. So anyway, uh, nonetheless, that was for hymn books. So I apologize if you want to refund C. Earl, okay? And... Uh, but nonetheless, it was, we have a few more rows here of hymn books to replace. We'd like to get the new ones in. That's what the offering was for. And I'm sorry. Things like that really bugged me when I mess it up, and so I did, and so I confessed. Hopefully, my soul feels better, okay? Anyway, Romans chapter 3, we get back at it last week. If you weren't here, we had services on Tuesday because of being July 4th on Wednesday. Uh, we had a great message looking at the Declaration of Independence. I'd encourage you to get online, listen to it, talking about our right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and understanding the context of the Declaration of Independence. really doesn't have much to do with Romans, although Romans certainly talks about liberty and freedoms and things like that that we have in Christ. So I'd encourage you, if you weren't able to be here, I know some were out traveling and things like that. It's a great message message to listen to, to think about our founding fathers and what they truly believed about God and what even comes through the Declaration of Independence. But tonight, we get back to Romans chapter 3, and uh, it is a delight to study this book, and now we kind of make a little transition. We come to the first of several culminating moments in the book of Romans. We've been anticipating arriving here. We're like at the precipice of the, uh, the first precipice of a uh, chain of mountains, if we might put it that way. In one way, we might describe it as the first of several closing arguments by the prosecuting attorney. We've been picturing for several months now this book as a court case. And in the first few chapters, we've seen that all mankind is on, on trial, uh, standing guilty before God, as even we'll see is the culminating thought here. And uh, literally, the first of several closing arguments now in these verses 9 through 20, and uh, reaching, really building an argument uh, or an unarguable case, if we might put it that way. A statement of guilt. Look at verse number 9. It kind of kicks it off for us. Paul asks a couple questions to begin with. What then? Are we better uh, than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jew and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. You see it on your outline. We've called this Paul's arraignment of the world. World here using the idea of all mankind. There's really this sense here. An arraignment, what is that? You might have heard that term judicially speaking. In our judicial system, an arraignment is a hearing in which the accused is formally and officially charged with a crime. What's interesting about an arraignment is typically what happens, the accused offers a plea. And what you and I have been studying in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, we've seen some of the pleas offered by the world, by the Jew, and, and by the hypocrite and others. And so this is very much like now a, a culmination uh, 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 of the charges laid. Uh, really, we might put it this way. He, he sums it all up in this verse. And his conclusion at the arraignment is this. All are under sin. All are under sin. 
It's interesting then as he says that, who is the, as he puts it here in verse 9, who is the they? That they are all under sin. Who, who is the they? Well, both Jew and Gentiles. He defines it here in the verse. Why is this point here made by Paul? Well, Paul's putting to bed once and for all the notion that there is any difference between the Jew and the Gentile, between Paul as a believer and a non-believing Jew, between really any two people on the earth at any time. He's saying there's no difference. You can't separate one from the other. They are all under sin. So when Paul asks this, what then, there at the beginning of the the verse, are we better than they? Notice what are italics, than they. So in essence, we could just simply read it. The translators added the uh, than they for clarification, but notice it. What then, are we better? Are we better? Paul's asking, obviously, somewhat of a rhetorical question. Most believe in this question, the answer to it, most believe that he is, Paul is, putting the final nail in the coffin of the Jews' belief that they held a special place in God's heart. We've seen that already in the beginning of chapter 3. Their arguments, the things they would have come at, the end of chapter 2. Well, look, we have the oracles of God. We, we, we are a privileged people of God. He chose us. And uh, some say, well, he's talking about the Jews here. But he's been dealing with that through most of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3. And I, I think it is very possible that he's making a secondary point here. See, at the beginning of chapter 3, the end of chapter 2, he's already pointed out, wait a second, Jews, you think that, that you get a pass. You, you think that you get a get out of hell free card because God chose you as a nation. He has dispelled that. He has proved that to be wrong. He has given evidence and facts to show them, wait a second, yes, you were chosen of God. Yes, you are privileged and blessed to have the oracles of God, the prophets of God. You are a blessed nation. But in all honesty, it makes you have more responsibility than it does get you free out of jail and so with that understanding now he comes to this and you could imagine that some are are accusing him what do you think they're accusing him of oh paul who are you who do you think you are to judge us see some of you have gotten it as you've gone around witnessing and sharing with a co-worker sharing with a family member people that have grown up with you and know you and then you go back and witness to them and they look at you who do you think you are a goody two-shoes what are you? And I heard this just the other day about someone to someone else. They said, oh, great. Here comes the holier-than-thou speech. Now, let me ask you this, okay? As we think and, uh, of this being a possibility, he's simply making the point. As a follower of Jesus Christ, he is not better in and of himself than the unbelieving Jew or Gentile. He's saying this. What then? Are, am I better? Are we better? No. No, and how does he answer it concretely? No, in no wise. So however you look at this verse, whether he's saying, okay, the, there's no difference between the Jew and, uh, and the Gentile, there's no difference between the heathen and the Jew, or as it seems to indicate, possibly he's saying, listen, yes, I've just shot down everything you would argue as a Jew, that you are special, that you hold somewhere special in God's heart and in mind. Understand, I, I'm no better. 
How many of you, let me ask you this, there's certainly some in this auditorium that were saved later in life. You, you came to trust Christ, and, and uh, after living a, a difficult life, maybe a hard life, how many of you, before you were saved, you looked at somebody, maybe a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker, a family member that consistently shared the gospel with you, or talked to you about church, and let's be honest, how many of you, be honest now, you said, before I was saved, I looked at them or somebody like them, and I'd say, oh, they're holier than me. Yeah, several hands. Several hands. See, it's something we face. It's something we come across. And Paul, you can imagine all his interactions with the Jews, all his conversations in the synagogues, all these different times that he just proved to them through verse number 8 that all the things that you think make you special actually make you uh, uh, more condemned. They would have looked at him, who do you think you are, Paul? So you think you're better than us? Some of you have heard that from family members before. Oh, so now, because you found Christ, you think you're better than us. And what Paul's going on to explain, no, wait a second, every person that takes breath on this earth, they all are under sin. And therein is the arraignment. In the courtroom of God, every single person that has breath stands guilty. You're under sin. Paul is simply establishing, as we have seen in the last two chapters, he is bringing it to this culminating point. You see it on your outline. Literally, he's shown them all under sin. Uh, We've seen already the heathen of chapter 1. We studied that. We've seen the hypocrite of chapter 2. And for alliteration's sake, we've seen the Hebrew of the beginning of chapter 3. All are under sin, and all of us fall into that category somewhere. All of us. Every person, a heathen, a hypocrite, or even if you're a Jew, we are all under sin. So as the arraignment has started and the accusation has been levied, uh, we all stand guilty. We can try to offer a plea. That's really what chapter 1 and chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 has dispelled. And so then we come to the next statement is the indictment of Paul, of the world. See, once someone is accused of a crime or charged with a crime, especially if it's a felony, it's a very serious crime, in our judicial system there is a point, often a point, where uh, in the court proceedings where that indictment, an indictment, is presented. What's an indictment? Well, that's just the list of the formal charges based upon the facts and the evidence that are sometimes presented to a jury or even a judge. And so an indictment is given. Several authors, commentators have said, okay, look at the following verses, verses 10 through 18, and you will find a great spiritual indictment of all mankind. So the arraignment is, the, 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 the levied accusation is verse number 9. He comes as to say, all are under sin, Jew, Gentile, uh, every person. And then he goes and explains Point by point, the indictment, the different charges. Look with me in verse 10, and let's keep our minds thinking in that same realm. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Verse 11, there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all. Now, you're seeing a lot of words that are exclusive or inclusive, totally inclusive or totally exclusive. 
none, none. They are all. So we have a lot of words here telling us that it encompasses everybody. Notice it. There's none that understand it. There's none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. And the indictments continue. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Now let's pause a moment as we read the last few verses. Let's remind ourselves, what indictment are we reading? We're reading the indictment of you and me, of every person. So as we read Romans chapter 3, what the Holy Spirit wants you and I to do is look at this and say, wow, this is me. Without Jesus Christ, in and of myself, my old nature, this is me. And that's a hard confrontation for our pride. Notice that we pick up. Uh, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Verse 14. Verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Verse 16. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Verse 17. And the way of peace have they not known. Verse 18. Somewhat culminating, I guess. Or underlying, maybe. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, I'll tell you, my friend, that's a scathing rebuke, isn't it? That is an amazing list of indictments, of charges against us. It's painful. It's hard for our old flesh to hear. It is hard for the, the selfish, prideful part of Stephen Henry to hear that. You know what I want to do with every verse we read? Well, I'm not really like that. I'm not, that's not me. That's, that, no. Now, granted, since you and I have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. But let's never forget from whence we came. From whence we came. It hurts to hear it. There's little room as we read such an indictment for excuse or rebuttal. In fairness to all of mankind, we normally would not argue for our own perfection. Most of us would never stand up and say, well, I'm just perfect. <laughs> I, I'm just, I, I am perfect, uh, complete. Uh, I, I am free from any sin. Or, most of us wouldn't argue that. But, well, let me step back. Most people are willing to admit, even volunteer, that they are certainly uh, not perfect. They have flaws. But this summarizing um, indictment deems all people everywhere, get it, to be totally depraved. Totally depraved. Now listen to me. There is a big gap. And in many of our minds, it's the size of the Grand Canyon. There is a big gap between saying we aren't perfect, we have a few flaws, and this charge levied at us that we are utterly depraved. And how does Paul define being utterly and totally depraved? Well, he says in these verses, we aren't righteous, we don't understand God, we don't truly seek after God, and the bottom line is, we have no way of pleasing Him in and of ourselves. That's total depravity. Now listen to me, listen to me very carefully. It is not total depravity as defined by a Calvinist or that's uh, who say that only God chooses people to be saved. That's not what we're talking about tonight, but we are talking about the doctrine of total depravity. That you and I of ourselves are incapable of gaining heaven and losing hell. That's total depravity. 
That's what Paul describes here. And that is you and I. Uh, as humans, we are willing to admit that we're not perfect, but we balk at admitting what Paul says here, that we are not righteous. See, that, that just doesn't sit well with our old man. Sometimes, and it seems like with every passing day, it's harder to help, uh, get people, encourage people, to show them from scriptures that they need to admit that they are a sinner, that they're not righteous, so they can come to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So it's hard for us as humans. Sometimes we are willing to admit that we are spiritually ignorant of some spiritual things, but we don't want to admit, as Paul states it here, that we totally lack spiritual understanding of God. We are willing to admit that we stray from the true path sometimes, um, but we are not ready to admit that we aren't even on the right path. (laughs) Again, talking about human beings, unsaved, unknowledgeable of God, those who haven't put their faith and trust in God. We balk at doing that. You see, we pretend as human beings, we pretend that we are seeking after God while refusing to admit that the fact is we're really running away from God. We'll call it all different things. We'll put any kind of label on it, any kind of description to say, oh yeah, we're following after God, but reality is we're running from God what these verses describe before us the truth about ourselves you see it here the truth about ourselves our total depravity that is is neither convenient nor is it comfortable why because it is an affront to our pride to ourself and it's an affront to the indulging our indulging of the best thoughts and views of ourselves So here we are in Romans chapter 3. What happens? We're beat up a little bit spiritually. (laughs) Paul is, and we'll look at these indictments little by little, one by one. But the fact is this. We've got to understand what is transpiring here. Paul is letting go on the final boom. He is really, it's the uppercut to floor us, to put us all under sin before God. And he's coming face to face or causing us to come face to face with the reality that I am totally depraved. That in and of myself, before Jesus Christ found me, before I came to put my faith and trust in Christ, I was totally depraved. I was unrighteous. I wasn't seeking after God. I wasn't pleasing God. And I did not have understanding of God. Now that's a whole lot to be confronted with. And to come to acknowledgement of it, it affects our pride. But let's look at now from whence you and I look. The reality is this. Our total depravity is the very thing that paints God's grace in such a beautiful light. We'd put it this way. Isn't our deplorable character, isn't it that darkness that reveals the brightly shining character of God displayed in the expression of love when Christ died on the cross of Calvary. In other words, Brother Carter said it uh, this past uh, Sunday night. Reality, in in darkness, a light can shine brighter. Well, the reality is my depravity, though it doesn't affect and change the character of God, how dark I am sure makes God's grace stand out in my life. So when God reaches down and to save a sinner such as I, 
when God reaches down to save someone who is totally depraved, who, who in and of himself is incapable, unrighteousness, unrighteous, does not understand spiritual things, does not understand God, does not seek after, does not please God in any way, and yet in grace and mercy, God reaches down and saves a soul such as that. You know what we call that? Amazing grace. Amazing grace. And my spiritual depravity doesn't make his grace better. No, his grace is good enough, like we talked a couple weeks ago, is good enough all by itself. But I'll tell you, my friend, when I look at my life and I realize who I am according to Romans chapter 3, who I was before I came to know Jesus Christ, glory to his name. And he saves such a wretch such as I, that now today I stand redeemed. And then when Christ sees me, he sees the robe of righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to my account. He doesn't see my filthiness and my sin. No, he sees the righteousness of my Savior who died for me and rose again. It is a great truth, one we must not quickly put aside. Our appreciation, our adoration for God is directly related. I've said this times before, but we've got to get a hold of it. Our, our appreciation, our adoration for our God is directly related to our understanding and acknowledgement of just how depraved we were before God found us, before we came to put our faith and trust in Him, before He redeemed us. You see, throughout the history of mankind, there have been different views that have been prevalent, no matter the age, about the nature of man. In other words, how healthy is mankind today? How is mankind, uh, and many times they're looking at it from an evolutionary standpoint, but how is the spiritual nature of man doing? And there's many, or uh, three different views that people would describe it down through history. The first is this. The first is the person who thinks that man, in his spirit his spiritual health, that he is relatively healthy. Relatively healthy. In other words, he's pretty well. He's, he's well in his nature. Those who hold this view, and this would likely be the majority of people today who think mankind's doing just fine, uh, they fall short of saying a man is perfect. We said that before. Most, most humans aren't going to say, oh, yeah, I'm perfect. But what they'll quickly say about mankind as a whole is that he just needs a few vitamins. He needs a little exercise. He needs a checkup ever so often, and he will continue to be well in his nature. In other words, man's doing okay. He doesn't need repairing. He doesn't need fixing. Man's doing okay. He's pretty healthy. Yeah, he's not in the best of shape. He's not in the best of health, but he's okay. Mankind is progressing fine enough. We ought to just give mankind a break. That's some people's view. That people are good, and if their soul, if you boil it down, uh, they, man's okay. It goes back to great philosophers, many of them. The ones who believe that man was a clean slate. In other words, that you're neither good nor bad, you start off just blank. To others who say, no, 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 man is inherently good. Man starts out good, and it's his environment that changes him. Be careful of that philosophy, Amen. So all those play into this, and they say, wait, man is okay. Man, his nature, spiritually, he's okay. So there's some in the world today, and, and frankly, that would be many of the, the, the people today, and unfortunately, many of our educators and philosophers and others who believe that. Well, there's another group that doesn't buy into that. Uh, they do well, and 
doing a mere preponderance of the facts, the evidence in the world today, such as the daily headlines. <laughs> and they say, no, no, man is not healthy in his nature. Uh, man is sick. Man's actually sick. He is. And these folks have taken an honest view and consideration of how man has progressed, how mankind has. They've noted that such things as the Industrial Revolution, such things as the free-thinking movement and and revolutions politically and and, and cultural revolutions, these kinds of things, and all the advances of technology and the medical advances in the medical field, all these things, uh, they really well, eventually we're progressing, or if we were progressing, they should have done away with most of those problems that humans face. In other words, if man is doing well, if he is healthy and he is progressing, then frankly, famines uh, would be no more. Natural disasters would be averted and diminished. Wars would be obsolete. If man is doing well naturally, spiritually in his nature, he's doing fine and he's progressing well, if that's the case, then somewhere along the way, war should happen. Famine should be done away with. Natural disasters should be averted. Diseases and plagues would be eliminated. The world would move into its golden years of brotherhood and cooperation. All I can think of is the old Coca-Cola commercial, I wish I could buy the world a Coke. That's just... Ah. I've seen Kumbaya. But wait a minute, this person looks back and says, if that were true, if, if mankind is healthy and doing well, then we should be much farther along. And the fact is, they look at it and they have to conclude, wait a minute, that hasn't happened, it isn't happening, and it isn't going to happen. Man's sick. I'll tell you, my friend, I, I've been amazed just the last couple of weeks reading headlines. Murder-suicides of families. Killings. I, I read just the other day, someone got mad at somebody walking down the street, picked up a brick, started banging his head in. 92-year-old. That was in California, New York. Somebody on a, uh, on a subway had a lead pipe hidden, gotten a little uh, upset with another person riding that, took out the lead pipe and slapped them silly, broke their skull and everything else. What are we coming to? I mean, what's happening to mankind? We think we're getting better, we're healthy, everything's okay as, as the liberal pundits and the media want us to believe that mankind is progressing? That's not progressing, that's digression. It's digression. And so there are some realists out there who say, wait a second, this isn't right, mankind is really sick, we need to fix some things. And they may, some of these may say, let's try some medication, let's, let's try some reforms, Let, let's try some legislation, and we can do these things and we can change the world, and, and maybe through the UN they think that we're going to change things. But the problem is this, those who hold that view, they stop or they fall short of the actual truth. You say, how is that? Well, um, he considers man to be very sick, and he doesn't sugarcoat the truth, but the fact is this. When someone is sick, there is always hope that he can recover. And so, my friend, this is one of the main points that Paul is slowly but surely presenting in these opening chapters. You know what Paul wants to get to, and this sounds harsh, 
But Paul wants to get to the point where you and I understand where every person on earth that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, where they have no hope in and of themselves. He's coming to this point. Wait a second. Listen, listen. You can't recover. And so what do we understand? This simple truth. Man is not, biblically speaking, man is not healthy in his spiritual nature. No way. He is not just sick in his spiritual nature. No, because then that would hold out hope. I can fix myself. I can recover. I can heal. No, my friend. The Bible's pretty clear. You know what man is in his nature? He's dead. He is spiritually dead. He's spiritually dead. Now, in and of yourself, you don't recover from deadness. If you did, talk to me after the service, amen? I want to find out about your story. You don't do that. You don't naturally recover from death. And so when you eat, this, there is a finality to death. We are unable in and of ourselves to do anything, to please God, to understand God, or find God. Paul taught this throughout his times of preaching throughout his letters, and he wrote about it in Ephesians chapter 2. Look with me, Ephesians chapter number 2. Ephesians chapter number 2. Look at verse number 1 with me, Ephesians chapter 2. Look, notice verse 1. This is where Paul says it. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now that's funny. He's not talking to a physically dead person because a physically dead person is reading this letter. <laughs> so it can't be physically dead. So he's talking to those who are spiritually dead. You have he quickened. You've made alive. You've been made alive who were dead. Your nature, spiritually, you're dead. You can't please God. You can't understand God. You can't seek after God. You're dead spiritually. But you have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. What a statement. Then it goes on, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, and the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. That describes Romans chapter 1 through 3. All right? And we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now notice this. This goes back to what we were mentioning a moment ago. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. Notice the parenthetical emphasis here in verse number 5. By, what's the word? Grace. By grace you are saved. He is just highlighting grace. He is pointing it out and saying, look at this. This is fantastic. You were dead in sins, and Christ in his great mercy, his great love came along, and praise be to God, he delivered you. And he goes on to describe it, doesn't he? And hath raised us up together. And made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. I can't tell you, man, I get excited reading that passage. 
Verse number five turns our attention to our sins being spiritually dead. And then this is what he says. Hey, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. And again, let me emphasize, it does not mean that you then in turn, when the Holy Spirit woos you and calls you, that you do not, you have an inability to put your faith and trust in Christ. God has given us a volitional will when the Holy Spirit comes, when he pricks our heart, that you and I can respond in faith. And God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Salvation is available to everyone. Not that God ordains some to heaven and some to hell. That's not what this says. But what it does say this, as you and I stood before we found Jesus Christ, we are incapable, have great inability to reach heaven of ourselves. We need a Jesus Christ, and we need a God's grace, mercy, and love. And so verse number five says, man, you were dead in your sins. You were dead in your trespasses. And then grace came. God shed grace in your heart and your life. For by grace are ye saved. What's he saying? Well, he's saying this. Now, don't miss it tonight. He is literally saying that our, um, our depraved nature, our sinful nature, it highlights, it highlights God's wonderful grace. Now, l- let me give you an illustration. Let's think about it for a moment. Here, you may not be able to see in the back, but the highlighter, just a common run-of-the-mill kind of highlighter. Let's say I took this highlighter, and, and here on my notes, as I have done some spots and others, um, we'll learn a truth about God's character, how our sin, our spiritual need, does not make him better or expand his character, as some of the Jews said that before. But what it does is the same thing this highlighter does. So if I took this highlighter and I were to highlight here in my text, my, my notes, my sermon notes, if I were to highlight a portion of it, what w- did I just do with the highlighter? Well, think about it for a minute. What, what did I just do? Did I, let me ask you this, did I change the words? No, I didn't change the word. No, I didn't do anything to change it. Did I change the character or the makeup of the words somehow when I highlighted them? Well, no, I, I didn't change the character at all. I can't, it, it isn't a magic highlighter where I highlight it and it changes the words. I wish that was certain, or I wish that was so. I wish that it could write for me. That'd be wonderful. And uh, then I wouldn't have to have Erica write my sermons. Anyway, um, it's a joke. Okay, don't take that in quote. Uh, um, I wish you'd do that. It doesn't do that. It doesn't change the character. It doesn't change the makeup of, of those words. What does it do? Well, I didn't alter the words in any way. I didn't make the words better. I didn't make them less by doing what I did. All I did was, by highlighting them, is draw attention to them, cause a little more focus on them, literally causing them to grab someone's attention. I highlight things in my notes so that when I'm looking down, it catches my eye. I'm drawn towards it. It doesn't make my notes better. It doesn't write my notes for me. It doesn't make it worse. It just highlights them. Can I tell you, my friend, when you and I say, wait a minute, I was totally depraved. I, I, I was a sinner doomed for hell. I had no way of getting to heaven. Can I tell you what that does? It highlights the mercy and grace of God. It takes a big old highlighter in life, and it takes God's mercy, and boy, it highlights it. Because you know what I I want people to see in my life? Stephen Henry is not going to heaven because of Stephen Henry. Stephen Henry is going to heaven because of Jesus Christ. And it's only of him. Now, I didn't change God's character. I didn't enhance his mercy or grace. I don't have that capability, and neither do you. But I know what I do have is when I put a faith and trust in Jesus Christ, my life can then be a highlighter for his grace and his mercy 
and His love. I can highlight, for God so loved the world because He loved Stephen Henry. And He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And my life can be a walking highlighter of that truth. I tell you, my friend, there's a great foundation laid here in Romans chapter 3. It's an important truth to understand. But yet, as we jump back to Romans chapter 3, we embark on a study in this uh, indictment, as we might put it. We embark on a study of a great presentation of the total depravity of man. And we come to understand just how bad the diagnosis for mankind is. What is it? We are indeed spiritually dead. We are displaying several symptoms of this spiritual death. And the first one is there found in verse number 10. He says what? As is written, there's none righteous. No, not one. And we have there the first symptom, the first indictment, the first symptom of spiritual death. We're not righteous. Now, as we've already said, this, <laughs> these accusations, verse 10, and the ones that we've already read following, they can hurt our pride. They may ding our pride as we may say it. But they sure do show the graciousness of God's act toward us. Why? Because this simple truth is there, isn't it? Romans chapter 5, verse 8. We're getting to it, but let's cheat ahead. That's what Paul says. But God commended his love toward us. When? In that while we were yet sinners. While we were totally depraved. While we fulfilled everything these verses said and how horrible it sounds. And while we were that type of sinner, God showed and demonstrated his love. And how did it come across? Christ died for us. I want you to see the big picture. As we take every verse, we're looking at individual tree of a forest. But when we step back and we see all of Romans, we see Paul putting pieces together, building the case and coming to these culminating moments. Here we find in verse number 9, all are under sin. He's building to this point, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. God's love, Christ's act, provides you and I salvation where you have to pause and stop for this evening. We'll have to get back here. I don't want to delve into it. I got some more to go, and I want to get into verse 10, but we'll get more into it in a couple weeks here. I trust you'll take some time. You'll read here through Ephesians, or excuse me, Romans chapter 3, and uh, look forward to it. We'll talk about there's none righteous, no, not one. Great truth, and uh, we'll see where it comes from. Paul quotes some Old Testament passages. We'll look at that here in a couple weeks. Remind you, Brother Cliff, you'll bring us prayer requests. Pray for camp next week. Pray for those teenagers 